Hello and welcome back to Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. What makes a fintech firm or challenger bank different from a legacy financial institution? Is it the products offered or the digital platform? Or is it deeper than that? In discussing with a dozen of fintech organizations as part of this podcast, I believe there's a completely different mindset at most fintech firms. What I've also found is that there's a challenger mindset that doesn't need to exist only at these new firms. It must be the foundation for any successful organization. We are fortunate to have Eric Fulweiler, Chief Commercial Officer at 11FS and previous Executive Director of VaynerMedia in London on the show. We will discuss what it means to have a challenger mindset and why it is so important today more than any other time in the past. The banking industry is in a state of massive disruption where competitors are increasingly introducing new solutions that can assist consumers and small businesses in meeting their financial goals. The competition is coming from both small and big organizations that are leveraging technology to change the way banking is delivered. But this disruption is more than just technology. It involves an overarching mindset that combines a disciplined, self-directed vision with a commitment to innovation and convention busting that serves both the consumer and the organization itself. We are really fortunate today to have Eric Fulweiler, Chief Commercial Officer from 11FS on the show to discuss the concept of a challenger mindset and how any organization of any size can benefit from this paradigm shift in culture and strategic thinking. So before we get it started, Eric, can you share a little bit about yourself and your background for those that listening who may not be aware who you are? Sure. So um, I'm the chief commercial officer at 11FS. We are a fintech company based here in London. We work with traditional financial service organizations to help them understand and take advantage of the world of digital. So what that means more practically, we have a couple products that we build, but a lot of what we do is coming into a traditional bank or insurance company and helping them develop what we call truly digital propositions. My background is mostly marketing. 10 years before I got to 11FS was in the advertising agency world, big ad agencies, small ad agencies. I spent about seven years of that at a company called VaynerMedia that was based in New York when I first joined and it was 10 people. And then when I left, I was heading up um, EMEA for them out of London and the company was about a thousand people at that point. So that was a crazy ride. And then before that, various startups in the US and I actually started my career in nonprofit. You know, it's interesting because, you know, Nonprofit and VaynerMedia especially, those are disruptor organizations, you know, because in a nonprofit organization, you usually have to change the mindset of, of a consumer or whoever you're looking to target to get them to take action towards supporting your, your organization in the same sense that VaynerMedia is the king of the disruptors of the ad agency. You know, they, they take great pride in continually innovating how things are done and the way you, you address that. So, you and I have had several conversations over the past couple of months about the need for organizations of all sizes to embrace this challenger mindset. So before we get too far into talking about something that we're familiar with, what exactly do you mean by a challenger mindset and why is it important today? The term challenger is obviously not new. And it gets thrown around and defined in many different ways. I'll give you my take, but there are many different ones out there that I think ultimately go in the same direction, but maybe mean slightly different things. I always try to think of like a, 
explain it to me like I'm five or a way that my mom would understand way of explaining things because I think there's plenty of uh, hot air and jargon in this world. So to me, a challenger mindset is one where you are thinking about things in a way that is fully fit for the world of today. So you're thinking about things as if you were starting something from scratch on September 9th, 2021, and you forgot everything you knew about marketing, about financial services. You walked into the world of today and you were like, all right, how should things be done? That is a true challenger mindset, in my opinion. So for example, VaynerMedia, when we started VaynerMedia, there wasn't an ounce of agency experience in that organization. And so it was natural for us to be a challenger to traditional ad agencies because we didn't know there was a different way of doing things. And often, you know, similar thing in our industry and in financial services, a lot of these fintechs, just by the nature of only being 12 months old, 24 months old, they don't know the world of 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so they're able to build their business, build their brand, build their experience and their product in a way that is from scratch right now, which means it is more fit for purpose for the world of today. So fundamentally, that to me is the difference, is whether you are fit for purpose for the world of today, that's a challenger mindset, or you're not. And the funny thing is, you know, sure, it's a huge advantage to be young or be naive to a certain extent to be a challenger, but I think any business can be a challenger because it really is about the mindset. If you come in and think about things from scratch every day, every year, then you're able to be a challenger even if you're huge. Amazon is a perfect example. They're probably one of the best examples of a challenger business and a challenger brand. And a lot of that is because of the day one thinking, that's what Jeff Bezos calls it, but it's the same concept, constantly rethinking how they need to deliver value to the end consumer, how they would do things differently if they were starting them from scratch today. So that's what it really means to me. And of course, you know, I know we'll get into it, how that how you ladder that down into decisions you make or things you do differently is a much longer conversation. But the North Star for me is that if you were starting things from scratch today, how would you do them differently? That is what it means to be a challenger. You recently wrote an article for the financial brand that focused on how legacy marketers could replicate many of the business of a fintech firm by applying three cultural principles. Be fast, not perfect. Don't get comfortable and learn from everything. Can you explain a little bit about that, but how it doesn't have to be a, a brand new small organization? That this, this is a mindset you really have to take on as a big organization as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I fundamentally believe talent and culture are, are not everything. I think it's cliche to say that, and a lot of people do, but they are the foundation for any change. You will not you will not win if you don't have the right people set up in the right way. And to be honest, I think it's a lot harder to lose if you do have the right people set up in the right way. So, you know, I've been around, whether it's on the advertising agency side of things, doing campaign execution, or the last two and a half years at 11FS doing essentially digital transformation and consulting. What I've seen to be a consistent red thread is, sure, you need smart strategy, you need the right technology, you need the right tactics, but if you don't have the foundation of the talent in place, set up in a culture that is oriented towards you know being a challenger and being able to to think and act that way then it doesn't matter the strategy or the technology that you're implementing so in terms of breaking down that article i i really believe that speed is the biggest advantage that startups have over incumbent businesses i could only pick one thing one thing to advise traditional cmos or, or leaders to try to do differently to try to push within their teams and one thing that i think really makes the difference 
It's how quickly you're able to make decisions and change things. Because if you're able to change faster, you're able to stay current. And so you're able to yep. be fit for purpose yep. for the world of today. That's why I think it's so important. So call it, you know, being agile or, you know, so many different ways to make that happen. But I think if you are a leader, really of any business, but particularly a business that's at scale, that probably struggles to move quickly, I think day in, day out, or at least once a week, once a month, whatever your cadence is of how you lead and manage your teams, ask the question of yourself and to, you know, your leaders or your team, how can we move faster? Because if you can move the needle on that, I think it's going to make a big difference to to being a challenger and to staying current and therefore delivering better products and experiences and better commercial results for your business. You know, it's interesting because you you say be fast and the other half of that was not perfect. That's yeah. really a key element too, because too many organizations, especially banks, try to have that perfect mix. You know, there's more of a risk avoidance mentality than a risk management mentality. And it changes the business model. We've already seen it in the fintech world. But I think it's more important to say, you know what? I'd rather make a, a pretty good decision today than what I think is a perfect decision 18 months from now, because most likely it's not a perfect decision. It won't be the perfect decision potentially three weeks later, and you've lost at 18 months. And so, you know, I, I was lucky enough to go to um, uh, China right before the pandemic and worked with WeBank and saw that they iterate so quickly. They make adjustments so fast. They have multiple cloud layers in place so that they can test in real world examples, but they're not they're not caught up on, oh, if we introduce a bad product. If they introduce a bad product, they pull it and they they test it on the on the on the server so they can put it right back in. And the the beauty of that is it's fast, it's not perfect. They're not caught up in their own mentality of what things should be. They let the consumer or the customer decide. And to your point in the financial brand article, they're continuously learning. And and you know that all works so well together. So we talk about it in the context of marketing, but don't these principles work beyond marketing? Shouldn't this be embraced by the entire organization or to complete, compete in obviously a very fast moving dynamic marketplace? I think definitely. I mean, you know, there's some schools of thought, you know, think of the Peter Drucker quote, innovation for product and marketing. I, I actually don't remember the quote exactly, but it was something around how basically it, product and marketing are the two things that drive growth of the business. And I think it's interesting for me coming from a marketing background, now being in more of a product company, I just see so clearly how those two things go together. And Jim, in some conversations we've had in the past, we've talked a lot, and I know you're passionate about the integration between marketing and product being so key in modern challenger businesses, whether they're fintechs or traditional companies. And so that principle of fast, not perfect. And to me, it's about speed. It is about being fast perfection and risk avoidance are some of the things that prevent people from moving quickly. And that's probably the easiest one. I, I like to say, uh, you know, get to good and go, meaning you probably know, and, and I will caveat this by saying, especially in this industry in financial services, there are some things that have to be perfect. Make sure you know what, know what those are, yep. but yep. that is what? 2% of the decisions we make on a daily basis? We have to confirm them because the reality is yeah. a lot of things that we think are required are not required. We we, we went for years having yeah. signature cards thinking that we had to do that. Then we realized all the government required was a know your customer and, and we just took it on as being a signature on a piece of paper. Then realized that was the, the worst thing yeah. we could have possibly started with. 
Yeah. But I mean, here's the thing about perfection is one, you know, I think it's, I think it's a really good exercise for everybody to audit the decisions they make day to day, the things they do day to day and decide whether those things actually need to be perfect or they don't. And if they don't, then the, you know, the, the way I try to think about things or the guidance I try to give to people, get to good and go 80%, get it to 80% and then go, even if it's not perfect, as long as it's a decision that doesn't have to be perfect, that you can come back from, because the biggest benefit benefit of that is that it lets you move faster because oftentimes the amount of time it takes you to get to 80%, it can take the same amount of time again to get to 100%. But the other big benefit of that, which speaks to more of the constantly learning pillar that I wrote about in that article, is you don't often know what is going to work and what's not going to work. You might have a subjective opinion about it that's probably pretty informed. You know, If you're the CMO of a brand, you probably know that brand and you probably know that audience. But Sometimes the thing you don't think is going to work ends up working or vice versa. So the more things you can put out in the world, the more decisions you can put into the market to let the customer decide what's right and what's wrong, because really it's only their opinion at the end of the day that matters, you're going to get more data and feedback into your team and into your organization to be able to evolve quickly to be better at whatever it is you're doing. Well, it's interesting because that's one of the benefits, I think, of partnering with outside organizations in certain areas of innovation, because it allows you to take their learnings and apply it towards your solution. So instead of you taking all the risk, taking going down the path, and you know, we, we talked about in a, a discussion we had, I think it was yesterday, around the, you know, the the GPS of of decision making, where if I can use a partner that can that can get me that GPS view of where I should avoid, how I should get to the next stage. And I don't have to live that, but it's been lived by the partner. That gives you a, a tremendous advantage. So, you know, Simon Sinek said um, in a TED talk that every company must start with their why, which really is getting down to the foundation of, of the existence of businesses, specialized, especially in a commoditized marketplace like banking. So how important is this for both the startup and legacy organization to, to really start with their why? Now, it sounds logical. But I think some people lose their way or forget about what their why may be. Is that true? Yeah, I think so. And the other place where I think people get stuck is they try to manufacture a why that's not really there. The best examples of why brand purpose, you know, the, where this whole conversation settles for me, are companies where they're just expressing who they are. They have a very clear identity that's probably been there from day one. You know, again, going back to Amazon is a perfect example. Um, but there's so many good examples out there. It's more, I like to say that, you know, discovering your why is more an exercise of excavation than it is construction. And so I do think, you know, you might need, you might need partners to help you figure that out, but make sure that it is something that rings true, not just to you as the CEO or CMO or leader, but to the people that actually work at the business and probably just as importantly, the customers that actually work with your business. But I think your point about external partners is important and kind of speaks to that don't get comfortable mindset, which I think is just as important. You know, you gotta, you gotta, if you're, if you feel comfortable, it means you're probably not growing and learning as fast as you could. And that goes for many things in life, but it certainly goes for business and, and marketing. So if you're in a position where, you know, you feel like you are not, um, you're not evolving quickly, then I think you got to find someone or something that's going to shake you up and make you a little bit uncomfortable. Well, and that, that, you know, that really talks to the whole world legacy banking where we get so comfortable and we've been offering the same products and services forever. 
And we've done it the same way forever. And so when we had the pandemic hit and we had to introduce new products, it really shook things up, but it showed what was possible. I mean, organizations were able to develop brand new products and new delivery methods in a weekend. I mean, in, a, in an unbelievable yeah. time that if you had asked them a week before, can you do this with all your employees remote? They say no. Well, the crisis mentality really gets you to move forward. But you, as you said, you need to get out of your comfort zone because the comfort zone, unfortunately, is making quarterly revenue projections and doing everything right, but not really doing them well. So, you know, one interesting concept with regards to legacy banking is we've done research for the last 10 years on what's the most important thing you're working on. And they're going to talk about being customer centric. And everybody says that you know, they care about the customer experience. They want to do it better. But I think one of the major differences in my interviews with um, fintech organizations on the podcast is the difference between customer centric and customer obsessed. Um, you, you find that the fintech companies tend to be all about the customer. I mean, there's just no wavering on that. There's no time where you think that what they're looking for is efficiencies as opposed to effectiveness. How important is it to be truly relentless in the desire to serve the customer with a sense of urgency and empathy out there, especially now that we're coming out of the pandemic? I think it's incredibly important because it the customer will never lead you astray, you know? Um, and so if you are always following what are the needs of the customer, what are the problems that my business and my brand can solve for them, you know, that's the North Star. Where companies slow down or get into trouble is when they get distracted and they start focusing on, you know, the quarterly, the quarterly reports to Wall Street or investors or their career. You know, they want that award or they want to say that they've done this thing. And that, you know, that happens. It's human nature. But I think the companies that are more effective right now, especially a lot of the fintechs, are the ones that, to your point, are just relentlessly customer obsessed. And then the other thing about that is that that allows you to stay a challenger. Because if being a challenger is always being fit for purpose of the world of today, the customer and the culture around the customer is going to evolve a lot faster than you will in a business. So if you're only focusing on yourself and your product and your team internally, you're going to get left behind. But if you're focusing on obsessing over and focusing on and, and the customer being customer centric, then they're going to lead you in the right direction. My favorite kind of the thought I always have with that or, or what I'm fascinated by is I think nobody would disagree that being customer centric is important. I always try to take it a level down with people and say, well, how are you actually doing it? And that can sometimes be a trickier conversation oh, yeah. and, and one that I don't think we think about enough. And so what I say to people is, you know, I think what gets prioritized gets done, which for me and probably a lot of people means what goes on your calendar gets done. And I think a very tactical thing that maybe can help some people that, that you know, we've, we've done here at 11FS is we've got a meeting every month where we get together and think about what does 11FS look like from the, from the perspective of our customer. Because it's so easy the other 29 days of the month or 30 days of the month to look at it from our perspective. But we sit down and we look at the website as if they would. We listen to the podcast as if they would. We look at the recent articles that have come out as if they would. So I think very it's, you know, strategically, it's easy to be customer centric. Tactically, it's harder, but that's one place I would start. You know, that that's so interesting because, you know, banker will say they're mobile application, their ability to deliver things on a mobile device is customer centric until you dig deeper and find out that it takes 15 to 20 minutes to open an account digitally. And you go, okay, was this really customer centric or is it really just to hopefully get transactions transferred from the branch to a mobile device, whether or not it's comfortable or not, you know, what 
what customer centricity feels like. It's Amazon. I mean, you go back to your example and you realize, you know, we pay, we pay $120 a year for the right to shop digitally without going into the store, without being able to try things on, with, without, but knowing that we can return things, we pay for that experience. So it shows that customer centricity is not revenue negative. It's a revenue positive perspective. But as you said, show me the tactics, show me the strategies that really speak to what you're saying is customer centric. And don't listen to it and say, are we really telling the truth there? Or is it really something that helps us more than a customer? And, and you know, I think one thing that I mentioned coming out of the pandemic, one thing the pandemic made very clear is what's possible. And, you know, if, if, if it takes me seven minutes to order a week's of groceries on Instacart to have delivered to my house, and it takes me 15 minutes to open an account, there's a difference that now I perceive. If I can go through a, a, a gas station and not have to take out plastic or a mobile phone, and they automatically can bill me for what I put gas in my car, that is customer centric. Yes, does it save them money? Yes, but it makes my day easier. You know, yeah. I think, you know, I have a major bank in the U.S. that said the only way they fixed some back office process was to completely destroy what was there before and start from scratch. Which gets back to your first comment, which is sometimes you need to completely rethink the way you're doing business because you get blinded by what was the past and what you're used to. And that, that's hard to do because, no, change sucks. As, I, as many people in the podcast know, I say almost every podcast is change sucks and nobody wants to do it. So... You know, let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of the podcast. This episode of Banking Transformed is sponsored by FIS. The way we move money is changing. We want to send money in real time to the other side of the world. We want everything in one place, integrated, seamless, and on our devices. Embedded, fast, standardized, and frictionless, as well as secure. These are our financial futures. The Financial Futures Podcast by FIS explores fintech innovation and the trends that are already transforming the way the world pays, banks, and invests across the globe. And the mechanisms we'll need to prosper in this new brave landscape. Is the world's technology up to the challenge? Are we? Are those around us? FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Eric Fulweiler, Chief Commercial Officer at 11FS. We've been discussing how banks and credit unions must build a challenger mindset similar to fintech firms or tech giants to be successful in the future. So, Eric, we've been discussing up till now the mindset shift that needs to succeed in the future at most legacy organizations. Looking beyond culture, how important is innovation as part of this overall mindset? Yeah, I, I think it's in, incredibly important. Not not surprised that I would say that, but I think the thing about innovation, innovation to me just really means keeping current. And so again, going back to the first principle for me, the definition of being a challenger, being fully fit for purpose for the world of today, you know, if you don't innovate, it's impossible to be that. So again, it's one of these things where the mindset needs to ladder into a strategy, which needs to ladder into tactics that are actually going to work. But that is, you know, innovation is the fuel that propels companies forward. The revenue is the oxygen that keeps them alive, but innovation is what's going to make them grow and actually, you know, continue to be a challenger and continue to um, 
to be relevant. Well, it's interesting because the products and services in banking haven't really changed that much over the last 40 years. Yet we've seen a recent example of buy now, pay later, where the old concepts of payments over time have been given a new life in a digital world. You know, I and I also mentioned my visit to Shenzhen, China, where, where change happened very quickly and was not as dramatic, but was always happening on. How do you view incremental improvements as opposed to having to have that big win? Do you think financial services, when they think of innovation, think about that big new product as opposed to the incremental change that have to be made every day to improve it? from the customer's perspective? Yeah, there's a couple, I always think in frameworks, right? That's, I guess, just how my brain works or what allows me to try to simplify complicated things into a way that I can actually use and apply them. So there's a couple frameworks I'll throw back at you and, and might be helpful to some of the people listening. The first is we talk a lot about uh, what I call 1% improvements and 10X ideas. So the 1% is the whole Kaizen lean manufacturing philosophy. Can you tweak this? Can you adjust that? Can you make right. tiny little improvements that over time are going to you know, be meaningful and are going to actually you know, change things in a positive way? But that is oftentimes not enough, particularly in today's day and age when there's so much competition, not just for market share and so much innovation happening from competitors on the product side, but also so much noise when it comes to marketing and branding and just trying to capture that mindshare and be relevant and stand out. 1% improvements are not enough, but they are the foundation. You need them. The other part of it is the 10x ideas. You need those big swings that maybe are a little bit riskier, which is what's harder to do for some non-challenger traditional businesses, but are the things that even if you miss a couple of them, the one that you hit is going to fundamentally change the course of your business. Amazon Prime, you know, is a great example. That was incredibly risky when they did it, but of course it changed the nature of, of their business financially and, and otherwise. So that's one. I think the other one that is not mine, but is one I think about a lot is the 70-20-10 framework. I don't want to misquote where this came from. Somebody's going to have to look this up, but it's oftentimes used in an advertising context to say 70% of your advertising spend should go to tried and true things that you know will work. 20% should go to kind of the next frontier of like, you're pretty sure they're going to work, but they're a little bit different. And then 10% should be the, let's take a gamble. You know, this new platform, that new thing we haven't done before, let's see how it works. That framework, I think, also works when it comes to this conversation and innovation and just thinking about these types of decisions. If you are putting 100% of your time, energy, focus, budget into tried and true things, you're going to get left behind pretty quickly. So whether it's 70, 20, 10, or maybe it's you know, 85, 10, 5, because that's the type of company you are, whatever it is, find a way to make sure that you are investing in things that are new and next, because those are the things that are going to give you the 10x ideas to go along with the 1% improvements. You know, you know, it gets back to also the incremental improvements gets back to how the consumer thinks too, because if you wait for that big thing, you're going to probably irritate as many consumers as you're going to um, people that are going to like it because some people are going to say that's just too much change. I don't want to embrace it. It's not something that's really there. But if you show these incremental improvements over time and you you wean people onto where you're trying to go, then it becomes much easier. Again, buy now, pay later, just threw off the charge as far as the acceptance. But it wasn't because it was a new product. It was because it was a new delivery of an old product, which was layaway. Um, and so the ability to buy something and pay for it over time, be it on Amazon or a retailer, becomes extremely appealing and easy to understand 
because we've already been weaned on it. And the consumer does not change in an instant. They, they change over time. And if you don't make those incremental improvements, to your point, you're, you're going to be left behind because you're not going to be able to catch up. The consumer is yeah. already going to say, I've moved on, you know, so it's important. This concept of being truly digital, which is what 11FS is built on, it's our religion, you could say. The way that we talk about that is that, you know, there was the analog world. And then where a lot of companies are right now, are they, they are digitizing analog products and services. Whereas what we want to try to help companies do, and we think any company should be trying to do themselves, is to be truly digital, which means how do you rethink things from scratch for the world of today? So it is that challenger type of mindset. A good example is, um, uh, is let's go with uh, music. So analog records or radio, digitized CDs, truly digital iTunes, Spotify, a completely different way of listening to music, a completely different way of finding new artists and the whole economy around it. It's been completely reinvented for the world of mobile, iOS, you know, YouTube, distributed, like all that. So that's that's a lot of what we think about is how do you be truly digital? Well, you know, does this focus on speed, flexibility, the incremental improvements provide a bit of an advantage to smaller firms that may not have the funds to completely revamp, let's say, their core? I mean, can the responsiveness to marketplace conditions in an incremental way provide a path for success for smaller firms, not just the biggest firms? Yeah. I mean, the you know, like I said before, I think the biggest advantage that small companies have over large companies is the ability to move quickly. So you always, you know, in anything competitive, certainly in business, marketing as well, you need to understand what your strengths and competitive advantages are and leverage those. So if you are a small company, maybe you don't have the budget, but you're probably able to make decisions quicker. Maybe you're able to hire, you know, better talent. Maybe you're able to take more risks. What are those advantages and how do you make sure that you're leveraging them the most? So I think, you know, you were talking about change earlier. I think opportunity is proportional to change. Meaning if there's not much change, there's not much opportunity. There's a lot of change that's been happening in this world the last two years, which means there's a ton of opportunity. So any business can take advantage of that. How they do it is going to be different depending on what type of business and what size they are. And there's different ways to do it. We see some smaller organizations in the States right now building completely new digital banks, but they're doing it in a way that says, if this organization succeeds, if it's not just building a digital organization, it's building a digital experience, a different way of doing banking. If it succeeds, we're willing to give up our legacy structure and move everything to the digital world as opposed to what Chase did, which was they build a digital bank and then they, I believe they got skittish around the whole idea of, oh my gosh, this can be eating our lunch or the branch-based banks. And, and you got 57 stories in New York at the time that were all branch-based and they go, you know, maybe we'll roll this into the legacy bank. So they didn't really change that much except delivery. They didn't change the way they organizationally thought, I don't believe. And they went back to the way they've done banking in the past. So, you know, these small banks are building brand new digital entities. They're doing it as a way to separate what I'm going to call the good bank from the bad bank. And you can pick either one as being the good bank, but it really allows them the flexibility to look at things in a completely new way and a mindset that says, okay, we're not going to put in all the, the things that we knew were part of the old bank and just you know, as you said, tweak them. Tweaking is not going to work. So you, you really seem to be beating the drums around the importance of embracing the challenger mindset. The question is, where do organizations start? When were you work with a legacy organization at 11FS, 
I'm going to give you the official 11FS answer, and I'm going to give you the Eric answer, which are not different, but they come from different places. Yep. The 11FS answer is you start with the customer, which I think is a great one. All of our engagements, we use this philosophy called jobs to be done framework. Um, and it's funny, you know, people are often ask me, oh, what's the best marketing book out there? Competing Against Luck by Clayton Christensen, where he kind of introduces this whole jobs to be done framework. Not a marketing book, but I, every marketer should read it. And it's probably the most impactful one for me because it just, it's a, again, a framework that helps you understand the importance of and how to be customer centric. So we always start with the customer research, quantitative, qualitative, and work backwards from there. The angle that I was going to take on it is they should start with themselves. So you have to get to the customer and understand their needs to be able to be customer centric in the product that you build. But the reason that I think, you know, I think that my answer has some play as well is even if you know what the customer is looking for, if you haven't set up the talent and the culture around you to be able to go change and get after it, it doesn't really matter. And so I think you need, you know, self-awareness is everything. Individual self-awareness I really believe in, but also corporate self-awareness. So if you are in charge, you need to spend some time thinking about and becoming self-aware. What type of organization are you? Are you a challenger organization? Do you have that mindset? If not, if not, then make sure that you find ways to go get it so that you are actually set up to take advantage of all the opportunity that's out there by allowing you to change, to be more fit for purpose and current with the world of today. You know, it's interesting, it gets back to, it's amazing how so much that what we're talking about right now really gets back to culture and leadership. Um, yeah. And especially with legacy organizations, culture and leadership in a brand new fintech or brand new challenger bank is easy because they have already made the decision to be different. They've all made made the decision. They know what their why is. They know how to go after their, the consumer they want. That's not the hard part. When you're dealing with a legacy organization, it's it's trying to get unstuck when things aren't broken. You know, it's it's yeah, as we've talked about before, and I've, anybody who listens to the podcast knows I, I'm adamant about it. It's like going to the doctor and him telling you you got to change your eating habits and change your exercise habits, but there isn't anything wrong. Yeah, you're, you're overweight. You're not exactly as fit as you should be, but there's no pain. The challenge is embracing that change, embracing what's possible, taking that risk when there is no pain and doing it before the, the pain shows itself because for many organizations, if you've got legacy leadership that's been there for 30 yeah. to 40 years, yeah. they'll be gone before the real, yeah. the, before they have to pay year. the piper. Yeah, exactly. Totally. So finally, how do people reach you if they want to discuss this concept of challenger mindset more? And are there any books or podcasts or other ways that you suggest that the listeners should, should learn more about what we're talking about? So you can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm doing most of my uh, content these days. And Jim, you were kind enough to come on the live show that I do on Wednesdays. Um, in terms of challenger, I mean, there's a ton of stuff out there. To, uh, you know, I genuinely do think that some of the conversations I had on FinTech Marketing Podcast, um, seasons one and two, were really interesting. For me, you know, I did... Yeah. This is the, probably the most talking I've done on a podcast in a while. Usually it's me listening and learning. So I would check that out as well. That book, um, you know, Competing Against Luck is a great one. And then I just, you know, if it's something that you're interested in, I think there's never, to me, you know, there's never, especially in today's day and age, there's never a lack of resource to learn something if you have the motivation to learn it. You said it right there. You said it because, you know, we can give them all the tools in the world. Yeah, But exactly. if you don't open the book, if you don't listen to podcasts, if you don't, 
that's what I would say is like, instead of me, I can rattle off some more books and podcasts and all that, or if you yeah. want to get in touch with me, I'm happy to give them to you. But I would take 30 seconds after this podcast ends and just think about whether or not this is something that you're interested in exploring more. And if no, totally fine. And if yes, then make it a point, make it a priority, put it in your calendar to go learn more about this. And you'll find people and things and plenty of resources out there to help. And you'll find a lot of them because there's not anything being written or talked about that is brand new. There's just different variations yeah. of the theme. You know, I, I, I've brought this up before, a book by uh, James Clear called Atomic Habits. Yeah, I Habits. love that book. I love that book. I read it twice in a row when I got it. Oh, and I listened to it twice in a row when I got it. Yeah. And what's interesting because immediately it's really about how to do this within yourself as a, as a person. The reality yeah. is from the very get-go, I thought of this as an organization saying, what small changes can you yeah. make in an organization that will completely rethink and, and change the destination? And they, they, as you know, they talk about the British cycling team and how little changes yeah. to yeah. what they wore, what uh, tweaking yep. their, their air pressure, whatever it may be, made huge differences over time to the point where they won the Olympics, they won the Tour de France, everything else. But it's interesting because, again, it's that the little changes, which are easier to implement in a financial institution that's so used to legacy yep. culture and leadership, this gives them an opportunity. There are very few things that are actually new. All right. of the things I'm saying yeah. included, right? Yeah. And even, you know, James Clear, Simon Sinek, there's a lot of things that are very similar to that that have yep. been published in the past. And I don't think anybody, myself included, is necessarily claiming that I came up with new ideas, but it's all human truths at the end of the day. And sometimes it's about understanding them on your own or in your own way, and then sharing them in a way that maybe at the right time, in the right way, at the right place, actually means something to somebody. And so, yeah, there's so much there's so much good stuff out there. I love James Clear. I've read all the Simon Sinek stuff. I've got on my LinkedIn, I, I read 152 books in 2020. So I've got oh the whole gosh. list of the ones that oh I read. I use audiobooks. I used audiobooks. Yeah, oh yeah. So I don't oh, yeah. know. Some yeah. people think that's cheating. I don't. Yeah. But yeah. I, you know, I'm a student of as much as I can make time for. Um, so I'm always happy to trade recommendations for books and podcasts and anything like that. Well, and, and we both believe in the same thing, that if you're going to change anything in an organization or yourself, you got to keep on learning because whatever you learned yesterday is already old. Um, it's, it's what keeps me young. I'm, I'm by no means a spring chicken. And that's it, it, why this podcast exists is because my desire to change. Can I give you one more that I think you're really yes. going to like? Yeah. So yes, const you need to constantly be learning, constantly reinventing yourself. The other one that I think about a lot is that if you don't feel dumb looking back and thinking about the things you said five years ago, you probably haven't learned enough since then. I'd say five minutes ago, but <laughs> we, we, the reality is if you're not continually learning, you're, you're dying. Um, and that's that's been my caveat for certainly most of my career, but more so in the last 12 years since I've been doing this. So Eric, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. This is great. Had a great time. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Raise a top five banking podcast. I generally appreciate the support you have provided over the past two years. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to follow Banking Transform on your favorite podcast app. In addition, if you could take 30, maybe 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to us. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the amazing research we're doing as part of the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, 
A challenger mindset keeps you focused on innovation and solving customer problems, but most importantly, it prevents you from being complacent. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.